Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Ebony G. Patterson. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University is showing Ebony G. Patterson while the dew is still on the roses, a survey of work Patterson has made over the last decade. The exhibition originated at the Perez Art Museum Miami and was curated by Tobias Ostrander. The exhibition is on view at the Nasher through July 12th. The exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $30. Patterson's installations, tapestries, videos, and sculptures wield beauty to address disenfranchised communities, violence, masculinity, and the impacts of colonialism. While the Do especially examines Patterson's consideration of gardens. Her work has been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Baltimore Museum of Art, the Savannah College of Art and Design Museum of Art, the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Bermuda National Gallery, and plenty more. Patterson was previously a guest on the show last May when we did a whole episode on monuments and memorials. We'll have a link to that on this week's show page. On the second segment, head astern. But a couple notes before we get on with the show. It's obviously been an extraordinary week in the United States and around the world, too. A reminder to check to see if the exhibitions and museums you hear on this week's show and in our ads are open before visiting them. As always, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. Reviews help even more. And finally, I'm especially lousy at mentioning this, but if you'd like to hear or see more from me, follow up at Tyler Green Books, one word, on both Twitter and Instagram. On to the program. Ebony G. Patterson, after the break. Now on view at the Getty Center, Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, an exhibition of extraordinary drawings by one of the most creative and influential artists in the history of Western art. Experience the full range of his work as a painter, sculptor, and architect through studies and sketches for such celebrated projects as the Sistine Chapel ceiling and The Last Judgment. The Wall Street Journal calls the show nothing less than the perfect exhibition. Learn more about this major event at getty.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Nancy Lupo, Scripts for the Pageant, at its downtown location through March 15, 2020. For her first solo museum exhibition, Los Angeles-based artist Nancy Lupo stages a conversation between the architecture of MCASD Downtown's Feral Gallery and a new sculpture, drawing attention to our presence among everyday objects, materials, and spaces that are often overlooked, but that deeply affect our understanding of the world. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Ebony G. Patterson, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. Let's talk about gardens. Gardens are prominent in, in, in your work, especially in this show. Did gardens come to interest you as a, a site, a physical material site that you can go to in the modern day world, or because of the metaphors that humans have attached to them over many millennia now? Initially, it was a metaphorical interest. And then as things have kind of progressed, actually, I would say post-show, I've become interested in thinking about the physical spaces of um, the physical space of gardens there are things about it metaphorically that i've also considered in relation to or i've also really been in, interested in relation to working class spaces and that so many times working class communities often have the name garden attached to it or there's something that often harps to land or the grandness of a of land so like there's estate gardens, trying to remember pastures, but something that somehow relates to a space that is green or a space that references a kind of bounty or beauty, but then is in, is in total contrast to that physical space and even in the way that those people who live in those spaces are treated. So for me, coming to gardens, I, I kind of entered in that way and then thought about these other lines within like previous work that I was considering. So for example, um, the statement of a tree falls in the forest doesn't make a sound. That phrase, you know, is, is about lushness, 
But then at the same time, it's about witnessing. And so there's this question of who is a tree and who is the witness? And does a tree have value if nobody's there to see it at all? And does it mean that the tree doesn't exist just because nobody's able to see it? And so it's almost as if there are many threads for me that came from that that then led me down this path to Gans. And I think a key, a really key opportunity that allowed me to explore that was when I was invited, when I had a show at the Museum of Art and Design that had traveled from the Kola Art Museum in uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a show I had done called Dead Trees, which was curated by Karen Patterson, who was then curator at the Kola, who's now at the fabric workshop in Philly, that show traveled to MAD and then Shannon Stratton, who was the then chief curator for MAD, she'd just come in, it was her first term. She had this project going on in the Tiffany galleries, uh, the jewelry galleries of MAD called The Artist Point of View, where she invited artists to go through the jewelry collection and uh, curate a selection of objects the first artist at the time did not do a, a kind of conventional hand. And I think realizing what the museum was proposing then gave me even more room to run to run wild within the vitrines and to think about their collection, but also to, to center those conversations around much of what I was considering in my own practice based on the works that were in the show, which were a series of uh, floor-based works, I thought, what if I could take everything that was happening in the floor-based works and put it in these vitrines as if it was a tableau that the audience had to walk and discover and that somehow the jewelry from the collection became clues to telling us about a body that was shrouded in this overgrown vegetation of silk, silk plants um, that were poisonous. And as they would walk, then they would discover a body uh, kind of buried within the lushness. And the, the title of the project was called Buried Again to Carry On Growing, which actually came from the line of a poem um, called Brief Lives, which was written by Olive Senior. And Senior wrote, she, she wrote a suite of poems called Gardening in the Tropics. And someone had introduced that work to me while I was like making this, you know, like I've been making this, you know, making these works. And it's not so much that Senior inspired me as much as Senior gave me a language that I didn't have at the time to talk about the work. And Brief Lives in many ways has helped me to deal with the attempts of uh, talking about visibility and and visibility within a kind of post-colonial language, but then using the garden as the as a site within which all of this unfolds. Let me fill in a couple things. Olive Senior wrote for the catalog for this show uh, that's now at the Nasher and which originated at the Perez in Miami. There are a couple of things you mentioned there about gardens and your interest and how you have built within the concept um, that uh, I'd like to talk about. One of them is is as you referenced that you hide things uh, within gardens. You did this in the Dead Trees installation at MAD. It's in the most recent wall-mounted, mostly wall-mounted pieces you showed at Monique Maloche in Chicago at the end of last year? No, 2018. 2018. I'm all confused on years. How and why did, again, I'm not thrilled about the word hiding, but how, how, and when did using gardens as, as a site of camouflage, whether it's for objects in Mad's collection, as you, you did in those vitrines um, in New York, or the way you hide bodies or body parts in the wall-mounted gardens, what about camouflaging or hiding things within gardens interested you? So, like, there are these two words that I often think about, and I think it, like, just goes back to when I was in the classroom teaching, you know, like the difference between what it means to see and what it means to look. And, you know, the works are incredibly pretty in in terms of the their materiality, right? And they're incredibly seductive. And so for me, I think since you don't like the word hide, there's also the word shrouding, uh, which may be 
better in terms of because it relates a lot more to vegetation. But yeah, so for me, it was, you know, like I'm, I'm always I'm kind of interested in the the butt ups between like the seduction of the material, but also to the toughness of the subject. So what does it mean then to challenge or what ways can I challenge the viewer when they come to the work? And there's always that person who just goes, oh, my God, it's so pretty. And then I would say, like, but is it really, though? You know, so you have to. So in the seat, going back to those two words, seeing versus looking, the person who is seeing only sees that which is its surface, its prettiness. But the person who is looking has to peel beyond those layers, right? Go into the difficulty of those layers and then realize that there's something much more unfolding and that the beauty just in in many ways just becomes a way of compelling you to look. One of the things that I've always thought is interesting, especially when we think about art and people who feel like, you know, like, well, I, I'm not an artist, so I don't really know this language. Like, we are we are visual creatures first, and we're way more visually intelligent than we tend to realize. But because, you know, the, the language of seeing involves abstraction, and that sometimes as it relates to abstraction, there's not necessarily, we don't necessarily need verbiage, you know, like, we don't seem to sometimes appreciate that visual language is language onto itself. And that's fine. And verbiage is a language onto itself. And that's fine. And, and it's okay that those two things don't always need to, to somehow intermingle. And that we actually understand these cues and clues a lot more than we give ourselves. I don't want to use the word credit, but, you know, like we, we're way, way more visually intelligent than we seem to realize. So then what does it mean then to use, say, for example, parts of a body shrouded in glitter and and rhinestones, but then that's next to figures that are headless or um, limbless, they're hollow, but you could see clothing. You know, like the, the fact that you can't like attach it to any one individual, it somehow seems to read as something communal, but then the land seems to be oozing body parts that, you know, and then it sits next to an owl or, you know, or, a, or, or their children peeping through the heliconiad reeds that are falling. We're seeing like the eyes of children, you know, so there are these different ways that I'm, I'm using also to that, the concealment as a way of suggesting that there's a haunt within the beauty. So about that haunt within the beauty, you know, there are, well, there, there are at least two major mega famous global garden traditions. One is in the European Christian tradition, and it's of the garden as Eden, unspoiled, untrammeled, natural, wilds, and sinless, and then that it's humans who bring the possibility of sin and, and you know, um, haunts, to use your word, into, into the garden. Um, has that Christian Edenic tradition ever interested you? I mean, not particularly. I mean, I take advantage of the fact that, you know, like most of the images that we know, we know in like art history come from the church. And so I exploit those cues. But I feel like the garden that I am interested in has to do with thinking about a space that's nurtured versus spaces that are not nurtured, you know, but it's all the same space. Right. And that somehow we, we we spend so much energy giving giving resources to one section of that garden and then uh, we marvel at how well it flourishes and then we scoff at the the other section of the garden that we give nothing to and then we scoff at like well why can't you flourish why aren't you pulling you know like why aren't you doing more why do you have so many weeds but you know the thing that I say is that those weeds come for everyone as much as one may try to contain and but as much as one tends to keep putting in the resources on one end you know like if you're if you're if you're missing the tail of that garden if you're missing the the other if you're not giving the same nourishment across the board then of course there's going to be an imbalance so the wildness in in a kind of edenistic space 
for me wasn't necessarily a, a first point of pivot. Although, I mean, I guess in, when we think about that video, Tobias Ostrander, who's the curator of the show, often talks about the Bush Cockerel. Well, the official, the official title is The Observation. He often refers to it as a space of Eden that you're observing these three figures in and you're not quite sure what's happening. Let me let me jump in for a quick second. The observation, the Bush Cockerel Project, a fictitious historical narrative is, is a 2012 video you made that is included in the exhibition. It is. And it's seen as a starting point of the exhibition. But when I first started making that work, I wasn't particularly I wasn't thinking about thinking about it within the context of a kind of Christian language about an Eden. But I think conceptually, when, it, when, when I pull out things from the show and I think about, say, for example, through the title, you know, like the title comes from a hymn called The Garden, which is essentially was a hymn that was written in tribute to the moment that Mary Magdalene had come to discover that Christ had left from the tomb. I think like that metaphorically, spatially, and the potential of that garden becomes more interesting to me because it's about time. It's about potential as opposed to in the Eden, while everything was great and wonderful, um, there was a banishing that happened. I think I'm interested in the garden both as a place of death, renewal, and possibility. It's also kind of reminding me of the next or the other broad global garden tradition I wanted to ask about, and that's the Islamic tradition. And so in the Islamic tradition of the garden, the physical earthly manifestation of the garden is sometimes even often walled. And I'm dead trees at at MAD got me thinking of that, of course, because in that example, you contained the garden within these, these, you know, eight foot tall vitrines. But in the Islamic tradition, the garden is uh, also very intently an earthly manifestation of paradise, the earthly manifestation of a site in and of and for the afterlife. And so you were just talking about gardens, not quite as a metaphor for death, but as a, as a, as a less pure space. And so did the Islamic tradition interest you or are there ways in which you've thought of yourself as specifically addressing it? To be honest, I don't, I've not looked specifically at, at Islamic garden traditions, although much of what you are saying does, I feel, speak to some of, to much of what I've been unpacking and thinking about, about the way gardens are employed in a kind of everyday life by people who are disenfranchised, because it's not just sight as much as it is also clothing. It is not just sight as much as it also relates to a kind of celebration of the body by people and how they use uh, beauty as a way of carving themselves into spaces that, that they're denied access or denied power. That somehow by employing these tools or these aesthetics, it becomes a way of saying a, a, a kind of call and response and saying that you can't deny me and I will not allow you to deny me. Any other garden traditions? Oh, what's it? The um, Hanging Gardens of ba- and Babylon. So like the newer works for those who bear, bear witness, right? When I started making those works, well, so some of it started when I was in the studio, when I was still in Kentucky. And then that summer, I got a residency to uh, the Rauschenberg Foundation and um, in Captiva, in Captiva Island. And essentially, I mean, Captiva is a garden. Like just it's it the 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 residency is essentially a studio in a garden as far as I'm concerned. It depends on which side you're on. If you're on the side of the bay, but it's overgrown. It's you know so like for me it was like a perfect way of like it was perfect to have to think about much of what I was trying to push formally within the work and actually physically living in that space. And then someone. One of the my colleagues had said to me, had I ever seen or had I ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of, of Babylon? And I said, no. And they said, so much of this reminds me of that. So I started there. I mean, I went like and watched a couple of documentaries that were available online. But just the phenomenon of it was really interesting to me structurally. And I think also in the long run, 
helped in me thinking about what was happening spatially and also to the carry arts from that into the space for the show, because there are all of these hanging elements kind of thinking about points in which the architecture somehow bleeds or opens up or is bursting with foliage and plant. So those are some of the, the broader philosophical global garden traditions. Are there art historical gardens that have interested you? Because when I look at the work, there, there are some painters who, who come right to mind. One of them is Pierre Bernard, especially in his paintings of, of the outdoors, frequently hides figures within lushness, frequently hides lushness within lushness, you know, kind of trees and flowers and, and crops kind of blend together and only really pop out when you when you when you when you look carefully and i guess that goes in a different way for for edouard voyard whose interiors often people feature people blending seeming to blend into wallpaper and you kind of almost have to find them within the rectangle right and i mean there's well there's also like the way that matisse for example also uses space and pattern that's always been interesting to me, the way the figure kind of collapses and falls back into the space. There's a kind of difficulty in terms of the way one reads horizon in that. One's not quite sure where the body begins or even where the table begins or the, the objects that sit within what's being described as a room. Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I think probably one other reason I thought of We Are in, 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 in the way people blend into his wallpaper is because you've increasingly been using wallpaper. What is on the surface of that wallpaper? What imagery is on the surface of that wallpaper? And why have you come to like using it? So, okay. So when I first started using wallpaper, a lot of it had to do with like thinking about ideas around gender and thinking also too about 1960s feminist artists and the way they were used and the, well, the, and also more, even more specifically the pattern movement, thinking about how pattern was, was being used both as image, but then also too as material. But when it came on initially into using pattern in my own work, it was a way of kind of referencing the domestic and using all of these kind of visual clues that reference the domestic as a way, as a way of referencing the feminine and raising questions about the masculine, somehow using feminine tropes as a way of measuring the way we were reading masculinity. But as, as things evolved in my practice and I became more and more increasingly interested in ideas around dress, I also became increasingly interested in thinking about how dress, how the pattern of dress then also related to the pattern of that space. And then the, the potential of having the eye fall off or fall out of space and while they're falling out of the figure to me was also a, a way of also dealing with the language of visibility and invisibility, thinking about how could I um, somehow manifest that language, the language that, that's held within those two words visually? How could I flatten the figure so much so that it becomes almost to a point of illegibility as if the environment is somehow swallowing and consuming it, but then it rises again through like the appearance of like a single object, like a shoe. And so I was interested in pushing that visually more and more and it's why not only are the backgrounds patterned, but also to the figures are also highly patterned in the same way. We also see that in um, a video such as Three Kings Weep from 2018 and in earlier works um, on paper such as Entourage from, from 2010. You know, I just mentioned two, two works that deal with, with men and beauty. Not all of your work that engages with people is about men and beauty, but a, a lot of it is. You're, you're, you more often address the relationship between men and beauty than you do between women and beauty. Why men and the male address of beauty and projecting beauty onto male figures, whether on paper or mannequins, for example? Why men? So initially for me, I think a lot of it also just started from, a well, when I was in grad school, 
a lot of the work that I had made was very autobiographic and it was very much about me. But at the same time, I, I was still very interested in these conversations around beauty and the body. And I had read an article about men lightening their skins as a way of eluding the police. And I just thought, what a jarring, what a jarring image to think about uh, men employing a, employing a practice essentially that was primarily done by women uh, as a way of shifting their, their image so that somehow they could assume a new identity so that they could not be found by the police. Now, while, while I had already been seeing skin lightening at home at the turn of the millennia, I saw it being practiced on a really small scale among young men. Um, and at the time they were primarily dancers. What was also interesting to me on the back end of that was that while the skins were also shifting on the men, so were the garments. And so this idea about what was being understood as masculine at the time was, was shifting. There was a language of femininity that was somehow, or the language, yeah, the language of the feminine was somehow coming in to redefine the macho. Uh, but then the other thing that I also I also also found really interesting is that thinking about the way that, you know, like the black male body, there's the way the black male body is weaponized in public space. Now, this is not to suggest that the black female body isn't. I think that there's a certain space that that just by virtue of being male, that one is not allowed to go. You know, so um, because of uh, because of social expectations. So, like, for example, on um, the stereotypes that are loaded on to men about like, well, you know, men don't cry. And then what does it mean, for example, to tell a boy, a child that he's to, you know, toughen up men don't cry. And, and crying is such a, you know, it's just a basic human thing. Um, and what does it mean to tell people that they can't be the full, the full spans of their, of their humanity? And what does it mean then to also set up parameters in terms of like what you're allowed to wear versus what you're not allowed to wear? And what does it mean in this time when um, those borders or those, or those boundaries are being, are being challenged or questioned? And so I feel, so in my earlier, uh, earlier parts of my practice, I was also thinking about like so many times what has happened historically is that there were things that would have been masculine and then they happened on the female body and then somehow they became anti-masculine. So if we think about like the history of the earring, the earring actually started on a male body and then it shifted to the female body and then somehow it no longer was employed by the male body anymore. And then it became popular again on the male body, but then it became questionable. So a uh, questionably in the sense of questions about one's gender, because it was something that had no at this at that time become popular amongst women to the point where no, it's no longer in question. So what does it mean? Uh, you know, like what are these parameters or these kinds of boundaries that we set up around expectations? And what does that mean for bodies that are that are vulnerable and that are seen as threat? when the full spectrum of that is just not allowed to them because uh, there are certain expectations that are immediately put on them because of a kind of systemic negotiation or understanding about what we're supposed to be and who we are in all of that. Is any of that related to how you use birds in the work, such as roosters or owls? Actually, some of the, the decisions to use birds, so we're going to go back now to Christian symbols, but... Some of the use of, you know, like some of the use of the birds or the owls in the work, actually, again, just pulling on um, narrative metaphors. So, for example, the rooster, for me, has been a reference for a symbol of betrayal. Um, so, for example, Christ says to Peter, you should deny me three times before the cock crows. Right. But then at the same time, the rooster is also seen as a symbol of masculinity. Your work for about a decade now, for almost a decade, has been very, very bright. Lots of decorative materials of such, such as, as glitter, beads. I noticed somewhat amused, amusingly <laughs> that your, uh, the list of media of works in, in your uh, installations sometimes just includes the word embellishments. Almost, almost as if you're throwing up your hands going, you know, it's all in there. Yeah. <laughs> what motivated you or gave you permission to open up the, the craft kit in the way that you did? Was, did that come from art? Did that come from outside art? 
you know, I feel like that came from both, to be quite honest. I think that, you know, I remember the first time I used a craft paper in the work. And, you know, like at first I was really afraid uh, to use that kind of material, even though at the time I had an understanding that, you know, like that all of these materials were totally accessible to me and that I could use, you know, it's not what it is, it's how you use it. You know, like I, I, I went to school, my undergraduate years were in Jamaica. And so you know, um, craft has a very different meaning when you come, you know, like when you when you end up coming from a when you come from a place where craft essentially means gifts for tourists, which has a very different meaning here. You know, like there is that. But then there's also the other stuff, you know, like for my time and, on, and as an undergraduate, like you are not allowed to use certain colors in your in in the palette because because those things then would have those colors would have brought you too close to what would have been considered tourist act. And so, you know, like art that was serious had a certain had a certain kind of coloring. And it's funny because at the time I'd already started using things like pattern within I had a pattern in the work, but it was functioning in a slightly different, slightly different way. Anyway, so this is just before I started doing the heads and talking about lightning. I did a small series just after graduate school, after doing a series of vaginas, and then went on and did a series of breasts. You know, I was a typical young female, female, a typical young woman, woman artist. So I was in Michael's one day, just kind of perusing. And then I saw a sheet of scrapbooking paper that was a damask pattern that was, so it was a, a floral pattern. Of, there were red flowers with green leaves. And um, it was quite beautiful. And I was compelled to take it home. And so I I did. And then I ended up cutting out, cutting out those patterns and then using them as a way of suggesting that in the because the, the the images of these breasts that I was making is essentially they were all decaying but then I was using the flowers as a way of suggesting that some life was like sprouting from this now what's funny Tyler is that I looked at this work recently like maybe about a month or two ago I stumbled across an image from this body of work which then made me go and look some more and realizing that oh my god look at the connection between these things and like much of what I'm thinking about now and even what I've been making you know post post having um hung uh the show at the Perez that it, it really reminded me that so, uh like that as an artist even when you walk away from something even if it was something that only happened for a small moment in the practice that somehow that vocabulary finds its way back into the work sometimes in one way or or one way or another so after using that craft paper it was just like well let's go i want to go back to something you said a moment ago you were talking about how uh, women's bodies had been in the work i think probably in the late 2000s in the late aughts just after you finished or maybe while you were still in grad school at washu in st louis you made a piece back then called Untitled 200 Clitorises. That is a floor sitting piece. It's not, it's not on a wall. It's, no, it's, it's, it just sits on a, it like, it sits on a pedestal. So first, where, where did that piece come from? What were you engaging with? Why 200? Uh, yeah, I think 200, I think at the time, the, the number really didn't have any significance. I think I was just trying to amass a pile and in the end, it turned out to be 200. But at the time, I was thinking up a lot about, well, one, beauty and the grotesque are definitely languages that I was interested in. But I was also thinking about, like, the objectness of women's bodies, you know, like the, the idea that we contain and hold things, which are other bodies. And yeah, and so at the time, my point of ref, the, the point of reference that I was making had to do with what was was the clitoris, the labia, and the vagina. But yeah, and so I I I ended up casting all of these. First, I casted them in 
And I think it was like a white silicone. And then I thought, oh, if I casted them all in red, it would also somehow reference flesh. But it was also a way of also referencing a kind of violence that happens to the body. And it was interesting that when people would see the work, they would always say to me, oh, at first I thought it was a pile of flowers. And then when I looked, but when I looked closely, I realized those are not flowers. And then they would say, they looked at the label and realized what they were and then looked back at the work and then they couldn't unsee what they saw. What what made me think of it was that you were talking about how references to bodies and people carried forward into the work even after you'd visited Michael's and had an epiphany. Because I, And I wonder if there's a relationship between Untitled 200 Clitorises from, from 2008 and a 2015 piece that's in the show called Found Among the Reeds, Dead Trees, which has... Uh, on the ground underneath the wall-mounted portion of the piece, a little pile of forms that isn't totally dissimilar from the forms you made for 200 clitorises. Yeah, the, the, and the pile on the floor, it's their little, sh- their shape, like the generic shape, a generic shape of leaves that were all knitted. But yeah, I see, I, there, there are moments, there definitely, there's definitely been a consistency in like engaging with piles, but piles as it really, in the, I feel like for me in the more recent work or in the, in the work postgraduate school, whenever I would put a bunch of objects within a work, um, quite often it was a way of referencing pictorially something falling out. Like I was always thinking about ways in which to reference what was happening within the moment that was hung on the wall. Um, but then also to another way of referencing a memorial. Yeah, I mean the the clitorises, I guess I could I I could see how there is a uh, because of the ambiguity that happens initially in the pile and also to in that kind of I guess because they're also all red so it makes it, it makes a kind of flattening of that form and it, that it somehow it, its legibility becomes a little clearer in the more that you look and I think that's something actually that just, also relates a lot to what happens in the in that work in in particular um that the there is a female body that's inside uh that particular work uh but it does become very difficult to read and it and it, and it actually occupies quite a significant chunk of space it's a the figure actually sits diagonally across the middle of the work and what what makes you realize that potentially could be a female body are the hats. I'm using female in parentheses here or the shoes or the shoes that are at, you know, at the, at the base of the work that's on the wall. Which are on top of jewelry that we typically read as female. Right. Exactly. Wait, I think there's also something that's really important. You know, like earlier you said something about, you said that big chunk of my practice the last 10 years has often pictured men as a center of subject. But I think it's also important to acknowledge, too, that as much as the, the subject or the most central subjects pictorially or in, me, in its immediacy have, have been men, that, that the language of the feminine is also incredibly present through and through that. So to say it's it's about it's to say sometimes singularly that it's only about this one thing too is also can also get other can also be a little tricky too. Yeah, no, there's absolutely a series of questions about uh what we associate with what genders that run run through the work. Last thing I want to ask about about the gardens, how often are your flowers specific and intentional, not just in terms of the species of the flower, if flowers have species, if I'm using the right word, but also in terms of whether you're, you are, are you using certain flowers to access certain traditions or metaphors? I mean, in the beginning, it was simply, so for example, when I started with the MAD project, which many of these plants actually are, or many of the flowers actually came from that list. 
all the flowers had to, they were only supposed to be poisonous, poisonous plants. So in the, in the, or, and, and poisonous, you know, poisonous could mean poisonous to ingestion, poisonous to touch, poisonous to ingestion for a pet, but not necessarily poisonous to ingestion for a, um, for a human. Um, so I played really broadly with that one because of like, well, you know, there's only so many or so much access one's going to be able to get of poisonous silk plants, you know? So they're just some things because of, and, and poisonous and those, and flowers are usually, the flowers that we found that were poisonous, that were available in silk, quite, they were like common things that one would associate with like that one would have in one's home, for example. So like a hydrangea has poisonous properties, birds of paradise, poppies, calla lilies, most of a number of lilies um, have poisonous properties to them. The elephant ear, also another has poisonous properties. The heart of Jesus, that's another one, also has, a, uh, has poisonous properties. Everybody knows about ivies you know, poison, uh, not all ivies, but poison ivy. But then you have some plants that are, say, for example, in the case of the, 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 what we call the graves affectionately, which is the work moments we cannot bury that have glass body parts, as well as objects that would belong to the body, like a pair of shoes, a hat, a toy, those mounds are all covered in carnations and roses. So in looking, say, for example, at street side images of uh, street side memorials, you know, like when a community would come out and uh, take over a street to mark to mark the space for our loved ones. I was looking at like the common like common flowers that would end up being used in those memorials. And a lot of them just also has, has a lot to do with like accessibility and also to just what's, you know, what, what's also inexpensive. So I, I use the roses and carnations primarily. And, and also to those two flowers are also associated with the funerary as points of reference for, for that work. But then inside them, those glass plants, so like the poppies, the calla lilies, the anthraniums, the bird of paradise, the torch ginger, those plants all have poisonous properties as well as the elephant ear. So there is some consideration in terms of the kinds of flowers that have been used within this exhibition. And much of that started first uh, thinking about Matt. Finally, We've been talking about beauty and high-key beauty and bright beauty, but I'd also like to ask about a a kind of winking moment of, of, of grit in the work. And this goes back to the early 2010s when in at least two works, The Passing, Dead Daddy from 2010 to 13, and an Entourage, which I mentioned a moment ago from 2010, you use a pink cinder block a cinder block that, that was painted pink, I should, I should, I should add. So why was uh, a cinder block interesting to you? Why was painting it pink interesting to you? And are you done with it or might it come back someday? <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it will or not. I never say anything is done. You know what I mean? Like people always ask me, like I've, I've, I've been asked questions about like series of works, some works, the series just seems so short. Uh, does it mean that, you know, like, I missed that. And I go, well, who said it's gone? So yes, that's my response to that. Yeah. So the cinder block for me was kind of, was a way of referencing the street corner because I was kind of thinking about how the corner, uh, thinking about the street corner as a, as a masculine space, um, as a space where men end up holding um, court or um, conversation in a neighborhood and then I was thinking about like what does that then also mean when but what but what's the street corner's relationship to the domestic space so I was thinking actually of the street corner as an extension of the domestic space because it is because it relates to a communal space and so in spraying that pink I was making a, a visual gesture 
that that this too is feminine that an occupying of this space which does seem seem from the outset masculine because it 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 because it's occupied by men is too also feminine since the domestic space has often been described as feminine space ebony g patterson thanks so much thanks tyler Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins, Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins's work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects, from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Hedda Stern Foundation director Shayna Larravee, who joins me to discuss Hedda Stern, Imagination and Machine at the Des Moines Art Center. The exhibition, which was curated by the museum's Jared Ledesma, features work informed by John Deere tractor parts that Fortune magazine commissioned from Stern in 1961. The exhibition is on view through April 15th. Larravee wrote the essay in the exhibition's brochure. Shayna Larravee, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. In the middle of the 20th century, Fortune magazine commissioned all manner of art for publication in, in the magazine, from Margaret Bourke White's famous and triumphalist photography to Charles Sheeler's somewhat less <laughs> famous but equally triumphalist paintings of the power and energy sector. So one of the painters Fortune commissioned in 1961 was Hedda Stern, and, and, and the paintings that Fortune commissioned in 61 are the paintings on view in Des Moines. How did Fortune land on Stern in 1961? Well, Stern had worked with Fortune once before in 1954 for a group of artists brought together to do their interpretations of Joy Manufacturing Company's continuous minor. This amounted to almost various interpretive portraits of this particular machine. And it could have been just her success at, at having done this earlier commission, I think also her relationship with the art director, Leo Leone, probably played a part. They would have known each other socially. They would have overlapped. Leone worked a number of times with the illustrator, Saul Steinberg, who was married to Hedda Stern. And though we're not exactly sure the reason that Stern was asked to take on this commission it did also make sense with the type of work that she had by the late 1950s been very well recognized for. And why did they pair her with John Deere? The, John Deere, not the person, the, the tractor and machinery company. <laughs> Honestly, that's something that we just do not know. It could be that Fortune magazine wanted to do something with Hedda Stern and John Deere seemed like a good fit to them. It could have been a random kind of assignment. Um, it, I'm Tyler, I'm not sure I have a really good answer to that particular question. And here's another thing that, that I'll say, which is this, this is a little more for the, the fact of just the process of research. Hedda Stern was not somebody who saved a lot of her correspondence. She just didn't think that that was a very important thing. She wasn't very focused on her own biography. And though she did keep an archive that has a lot of really interesting information for us as a historian, as a researcher, I'm always disappointed to not find the direct correspondence between Hedda and Fortune magazine or anything that you would want to find giving a really clear explanation for when and why a commission was, was started. It's just not present, and it leaves us 
digging for answers in in other areas, like trying to figure out who she would have been having dinner with. Hence the the allusion to Leo Leone as somebody who she and her husband Saul were socially connected with. Not unusual for American artists um, in those years that we just don't have that much diary or correspondence or related related material. Hedda Stern was also a longtime artist working with Betty Parsons Gallery. She was with the opening of the Betty Parsons Gallery in 1946, I believe. Hedda was one of the first artists listed as being represented by the gallery, and she continued to exhibit with Betty Parsons until the gallery closed with Betty's death in the 80s. But what's interesting about that, too, is that we know that many of her shows, more than 20 solo exhibitions at Betty Parsons Gallery over the time that they worked together. These shows were planned over lunches. Hedda and Betty, and we can tell in Hedda's notebooks, her her daily accounting of dentist appointments and lunches and dinners, that she was sitting down and having lunch with her friend Betty Parsons weekly. So that leads to there being no physical documents necessarily for us to recreate these exhibitions. It can be a challenge. Do you have a guess as to what Stern was doing in her work in the late 50s and early 60s that made her, you know, a so-called good fit for, for both Fortune and a John Deere-related commission? I think what made her a good fit was work that she had become fairly well known for, but that was actually work she had been doing earlier in the decade. By the late 1940s, early 1950s, the bulk of Stern's artistic production was focused on what she would term anthropographs, these anthropomorphized portraits of machines, which she found fascinatingly surreal. Her paintings of machines started in about 1947 and then continued until about 1952, 1953. In the 50s, her work started to become a little more gestural and her focus broadened more towards urban landscape, industrial landscapes, bridges, roads, further away from what what I tend to think of as machine portraiture. But certainly by the time Fortune magazine approached Stern in the late 1950s about this particular commission, they would have been familiar with her success in the earlier, in the recognition she'd received for the work of the earlier part of the decade. I think of these particular paintings for John Deere as being a combination of work that she had really been more focused on in the early 50s and the late 1950s. Stern is typically thought of or grouped in with Abexers as an Abexer. She was, of course, famously one of the so-called irascibles included in a group portrait in Life magazine in early 1951. And in your essay that accompanies the exhibition, you note that this body of work, these, these John Deere paintings, are a good example of why Stern as Abexer is a kind of strained or forced pigeonholing. But why do you think she wasn't one or doesn't quite fit? Well, I think it's it's easier to see Stern as more of a, a bridge between European modernism, particularly surrealism, and American abstract expressionism. Her work truly fits with both of those peaks. You know, she had been born in Bucharest, Romania in 1910 and had grown up in a environment that was just a fascinating place to be a young artist. She was surrounded by some of the the founders and participants of Dada and constructivism, and in the 1930s, the the rise of surrealism was felt in Bucharest, and she was traveling more and more to Paris and becoming familiar with the, the changing artistic scene. When she came to New York, she brought with her a lot of the language of surrealism that she had 
developed in Europe. And you can see that some of that stays with her throughout her work, even at moments when she seems at her, you know, incredibly in line with abstract expressionism. She does, by the 1940s and 1950s, like many of her contemporaries, become more interested in all over composition, in gestural painting, gestural abstraction. But a huge difference between Stern and her contemporaries, I think, is that she remained incredibly tethered to the physical world around her, that her paintings always had some type of reference to a source, and it was often a source that was visual. Certainly you see this in the machine paintings of the 40s and the 50s, and even some of these incredibly abstract gestural pieces made with spray paint in the 1950s, even those you can see the urban landscapes, the, the bridges, the roads, the physical structures that Stern is trying to convey in what amounts to a very abstract expressionist language. So let's talk about these 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 deer paintings. What are we seeing in them? Away from what is she abstracting, if you will? Tell me more, Tyler, about what you want to talk about. The way that they're made, the, if not the objects. Yeah, let's start with what she's painting. So some of the, the, these paintings have very specific titles. Combine platform, press break, rock shaft, control valve housing. Is she starting by looking at an actual six-cylinder engine, another title? Or is she merely referring to the existence of the thing? How is she navigating the John Deere-ness of the thing? Well, what we understand about her, her tour of John Deere is, is quite interesting. She recalled the treatment that she received as being quite unusual and unexpected. You know, here she was a, you know, an abstract artist from New York, brought to Moline, Illinois, Waterloo, Iowa, and flown around in this small plane from plant to plant. And she was treated like an honored member of the press. The impression that I've had in looking into both Fortune magazine and this particular commission is that this was a a strange opportunity where artists were treated like de facto field reporters. They were given the privilege of, of seeing the, the inner workings of a company or a manufacturer and asked to, in a visual way, report on their findings without too much direction on how that should look. So when we look at these paintings, what we're seeing is a reflection of what Stern was observing in a broad-ranging tour of John Deere manufacturing plants. She was taking to spaces and she described being interested not exactly in the specific machine she's seeing, but in parts and processes. So here's Stern being taken to a manufacturing plant and seeing a variety of things. She's seeing the machines that make the machines. She's seeing finished parts of machines on the assembly line. She's seeing, in one case, a pile of discarded tractor seats, which she said in her comments about the paintings, also published with Fortune magazine, that just the pile of tractor seats made an interesting design. So I think that she brought with her, probably with the blessing of fortune, the the luxury of letting her interests fall where they were. So we're, we're looking at, in one case, we're looking at a fairly recognizable and completed engine, a six-cylinder engine. But in other places, like the rock shaft control valve housing, This is a part that you wouldn't necessarily see on a finished tractor. she's, She's doing a sort of study, a sort of portrait of a part as it's coming off of the manufacturing line and before it becomes functional, before it becomes inserted into a machine, you know, never to see the light of day for the end user apart from the occasional visit to the mechanic. 
We'll have images of these paintings on manpodcast.com. Tractor Seat is uh, an interesting painting for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's, I think it's the most abstract painting in the show. It also is a painting that I squinted at because I vaguely think I can find, vaguely, Duchamp's Bride Strip Bear in it somewhere. Um, it, it, it seems to have that kind of elliptical movement or something in it, even though there's something holding, pinning, pinning down the composition in the middle of the painting. And it's it's like almost every painting here, a good example of how Stern is willing to do something that most of her Abex peers aren't. I mean, the, 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 her peers who are more thoroughly Abexers aren't. And that is to allow depth into the paintings, to, to not slam everything into the picture plane, for there's something to be beyond the foreground, something often nebulous. Any idea why she sort of insisted on keeping that space in, in her paintings? I think like a lot of her contemporaries, she, she was interested in light and space. And again, I'd bring it back to this, this interest in portraying what she is seeing around her and what she is seeing existing in real time and space. One of the powers of these particular paintings, though, I think is just this this use of spray paint, where had she not surrounded a number of these machine depictions with these billowing areas of lightly applied whites and blues, you wouldn't really have quite the power of that object floating towards you. I think the choice there was was made in order to convey a sort of what Stern would have called. Let me let me set that up for a second. Spray paint is a, a new thing. Stern is, of course, fascinated by American industrial technology, see John Deere. But so spray paint is patented in 1949, comes onto the market in the early 1950s, and she's using it almost immediately in her work. So she's melding subject with uh, a, a, a new technology in her field, painting, although, of course, spray paint wasn't intended for how she used it, and uh, doing it all within um, a painting language that not only did she develop, but that she allowed that new technology, spray paint, to contribute to. Absolutely. At one point when she was asked why she was using spray paint in many of her canvases, particularly in the 1950s, she she said very dramatically that she was trying to emphasize motion and light and it couldn't be done in sky riding with jet planes. This was a tool that she had to really convey what, what I see as excitement and enthusiasm for the, the kind of the speed and the motion, the sounds and the, the textures of urban living. Yeah. There's a, there's a very urban feel to almost well, to a lot of her painting, and so these are these are paintings of uh, industrial machinery created in in the Midwest, often in the Quad Cities region, and yet they feel super urban, super gritty. So how how did Fortune end up using these? How did Fortune? What did Fortune do with them? Well, Fortune took took the pieces and ran them in their July nineteen sixty one issue in a six page spread. And it was treated really as its, its own individual profile. The paintings were reproduced beautifully in color and paired with quotes by Stern about what she was seeing. It's interesting, some of the things that she has to say, you know, Fortune adds some of its own commentary, but overall, the piece they publish is left to be the artist's interpretation of what she's seeing. The, the title of the article is The Artist in Tractor Works, a Portfolio of Paintings by Hedda Stern. And I think that that sums it up pretty, pretty simply. The, the other part of it that's kind of crucial and fast, fascinating is this spread is in Fortune's biggest issue of, of the year, of every year. Um, it's, the, it's in the Fortune 500 issue in, in uh, the summer of 61. Finally, how did these paintings end up, uh, all seven of them, at John Deere? Was that part of the original plan or did the company just like them and get them? It was not. It was not part of the original plan. You know, Fortune's interest in these works was the commission was strictly for the images for reproduction. 
the paintings themselves stayed with Hedda Stern after the article had ran. And it was not until about 1964 that she was contacted through the Betty Parsons Gallery by the CEO of John Deere. At the time, by 1964, I believe, the Deer and Company had just opened its brand new headquarters in Moline, Illinois, designed by Eero Saarinen. And the company's then CEO, William Hewitt, went about from that point forward collecting work to fill the halls and to, to warm the, the space for the employees. And I think it's really wonderful that his for all for everything that we can tell his first acquisition potentially for the John Deere and Company art collection were these paintings by Hedda Stern it would have been i suppose an obvious choice but i think it was a brilliant choice as well it was never a given that the work would have been acquired by Deere and Company but in fact, it was. The work was still in Stern's collection, and the the company was able to purchase the full suite of seven paintings, three on canvas and four on heavy paper. And they've been a part of the Deer & Company art collection ever since. Shana Larrabee, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.